This episode is being sponsored by Auxilio Partners, building the legal, business, and technology infrastructure for church plants. Find out more at auxilio.partners slash five points. You're listening to the Five Points Church Planning Podcast, where two church planters try to make one good point. My name is Reed, and I'm the intern pushing all the buttons. Today on the pod, we're bringing out the big guns. Colin Hansen from the Gospel Coalition is joining us to talk about his experiences being a part of church plants and what planting looks like in a modern world. Here we go. All right. Well, today we are starting off not with Hunter, but with Reed, our intern. We have an emergency situation happening. Reed, tell us what's going on. Okay. So... You know, we currently live in the outskirts of Memphis, Tennessee. This is the northernmost that I've ever lived. <laughs> it has dipped into the 20s for the first time. And John, I don't know what to do. How do I outfit myself, first of all, but also my children for this winter onslaught that is coming our way? Yeah, so 20 degrees sounds pretty balmy, I guess, right now. Uh, but I did scrape off my windshield this morning. So here's my my top tips for you Southerners who are unable to bear the 20 degrees. Okay, number one, you can't see me if you're listening, but wear a hat like this. Nice winter hat. I never take this hat off. Now, I'm partly uh, hair impaired on the top of my head. So a uh, hat is especially necessary for me. You can have the nicest coat you want, but if you don't have a hat on your head, you will be cold. Um, so that's number one. Number two, if you have the money to drop a down jacket, is going to keep you very toasty warm. Uh, but when it comes to your children, uh, don't buy fleece-lined pants or anything like that. Just put on like three, four, five layers, however many layers they need to be warm, because you're only going to wear those pants one time, and they're going to get ruined anyways. So kids are resilient, just put on layers. And here's the extra tip, buy mittens, not gloves. Mittens, not gloves, because then your fingers keep each other warm. So nice hat, if you can, a nice jacket, layers and mittens. I think you'll do okay. John, that, that comment on mittens, that's, that's, high, that's high level, pro, pro level advice you're giving out there. Yeah, it's free today. All right. I got a seminar coming up next week, uh, $15 registration. <laughs> and and Reed, just for clarification, for those who are listening in the southeastern part of the United States, we call what on top of a head to keep it warm down here? Yeah, so I suppose there are many, many terms. Hunter came in calling it a toboggan, and John was very confused why someone would wear a sled atop their head, even if it's <laughs> snowing outside. <laughs> hey, and one extra bonus tip for you, and this is really relevant right now. If it's really cold and windy, a face mask goes a long way, and, well, you might be required to wear one right now anyway, so there you go. Uh, but let's uh, transition here, Hunter. What are we doing today? Well, John, we're talking to Colin Hansen. He is the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition, and he is an author, and most importantly, without question, no doubt, especially in the light of the fact that we just beat Auburn in the Iron Bowl, he is an Alabama fan. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. <laughs> well, welcome, Colin. Glad to have you with us. Um, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, how you came to faith, uh, maybe some of your family background, where you're from. 
Sure. I grew up on a on a farm in South Dakota. Um, my family hey, been there. I know. There we go. The uh, the, the the balmy Dakota. Um, <laughs> I find, by the way, this is a something I learned now. I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Whenever I say South Dakota, people respond to me and say, "Oh, North Dakota." I've never met anybody from there. It happens <laughs> almost every single time. It's like people in the South cannot associate the words South with Dakota. They have to, it has to be the North no. there. So yeah, so I grew up on a farm. Uh, my family had been uh, Methodists going all the way back to Wales in the, um, in like the 1700s, the revivals there. And so I grew up in the United Methodist Church, very different kind of Methodist Church though, from what um, my family uh, history goes all the way back to. And so I was not so much interested in that, did not have a, a living faith. My family, my immediate family was not, even though we were church going, were not particularly um, sort of uh, pious or interested in talking about God. I had a pretty dramatic uh, conversion experience at age 15 through a, a kind of parachurch revival organization that was held at a local ELCA Lutheran church. That was in 1997. And pretty quickly after that, discerned a call toward, toward ministry and headed off to uh, college in Chicago at uh, Northwestern University, studied journalism. Uh, had, uh, I still thought maybe, I mean, it was kind of two different tracks. I could either do the ministry track uh, toward the local church, or I could do sports journalism. Uh, I split the difference and decided to do uh, church journalism. At least that's where the Lord uh, led me to. So I worked at Christianity Today magazine for four <laughs> years, then did um, Master Divinity at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, and then uh, from there, started with the Gospel Coalition in 2010. And so have been in charge of our content, our publications uh, ever since there, the last, last 10 years. So there's a great irony in going into sports marketing as potential from South Dakota, where basically there are no sports. <laughs> well, that was that was one that was one of the challenges. I mean, I I remember meeting with a sports journalist, uh, and he was working at the local newspaper. And my grandmother, who's been a she's been a newspaper columnist. She's 91 years old. She's been a newspaper columnist for like 60 years, and she introduces me and she says, "Well, we're at the McDonald's," um, and she says you know, what should he go into journalism? And he says, oh no, that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I suppose being away from your family, watching high school sports every single night, making $20,000 a year is probably not <laughs> the best way to spend your life. Uh, so no, that's right. I mean, I, your close team, as you know full well, is Minneapolis. And so my mm -hmm. great act of childhood rebellion was rejecting my father's teams in Minnesota and instead heading down Interstate 29 uh, to Kansas City. So mm. I'm a big Royals and Chiefs fan. And I got to say, I think if you throw out 87 and 91 with the Twins when I was a child, I think I've made the right choice. I think the Twins invite A lot less disappointment. Yes, that's yeah. right. <laughs> so I think I made the right decision there. But yeah, no, no, it's not a – I mean, even – and when I was growing up, we also didn't have Division One sports. Not like the Jackrabbits and the Bison doing so well now um, in, in Division One athletics. So very different story back then. 
So, Colin, I'll, we can talk about this later, but I actually had a, a player for the Kansas City Chiefs in my church, um, really? my, my first church plant for several years. So that was um, that was fun, and a lot of great heard a lot of great stories about the locker room uh, for the Kansas <laughs> for the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, well, my you'll you'll appreciate this. Uh, the number I wore uh, through high school football was fifty eight. Uh, for my favorite Kansas uh, yes. player, Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas, the noted not, theologian. <laughs> exactly. Not until I, uh, not until I then met my wife. Uh, I left her out of the story. We met in college um, and got married right after college, and that was my induction into Alabama fanhood, and then ultimately in moving to Birmingham. I've been here for the last eight years, but yeah, Derek Thomas. When you watch his videos. Um, from the from Alabama, he could definitely he could have played today with that kind of athleticism. I mean, he was he was amazing. So mm -hmm. one of my mm -hmm. all time favorite players. So mm -hmm. those connections. But yeah, now now we got Patrick Mahomes and everything's good. Oh, that's so. right. Well, Colin, <laughs> you you are an author editorial. Tell us a little bit about your podcast in light of the fact that you're on ours yep. and your forthcoming book. So the podcast I host for the Gospel Coalition is called Gospel Bound, and the idea behind that podcast is helping people to uh, live, find firm faith in an anxious age. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who want to make us angry and who want to make us afraid, but when we actually look at what God is doing in this world, we see a whole lot of evidence of, of hope and of faith and of people of putting their faith in action. So I get to talk with people who are doing that. I get to talk with non-Christians who help us to understand the world, um, especially for church planters and other people whose, whose job requires a great deal of, of analysis of, of culture, things like that. So that's what I get to do with the Gospel Bound podcast. It's mostly interviews with authors. And then the book that's coming out in April, Lord willing, Gospel Bound, um, you know, finding, you know, living with resolute hope in an anxious age. I think it's going to be pretty well-timed and I, when I talk with church leaders it, right now, it's pretty well exhaustion across the board, burnout. Mm. Had a friend of mine reach out to me on Monday, or not, not too long ago. It was the Monday after Thanksgiving, which I think might be the worst calendar day of the year uh, for pastors. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're, you're heading, you know, you know December is going to be busy, but it's going to be pretty negative. And he said, I've been hearing from so many pastors who want to quit. And what I'm trying to encourage people to see is that a lot of the reasons, whether it be media or politics or fundraising, even some voices in the church, they want to make us divided. They want to make us angry. They want to make us afraid because there are vested economic, uh, other interests in them doing so. And so we want to flip that script and tell stories of of churches, of individual Christians, of families across the world living out their faith in ways that speaks in compelling ways to the church. And so we have, we go through the book of Romans in the book, and we just identify these different um, commands from the Apostle Paul living out of the gospel about loving our enemies and showing hospitality and caring for the weak and things like that and say, normal Christianity it doesn't matter who's in the White House or who controls the Supreme Court or even in a pandemic, uh, the work of the Spirit continues to go forth and God's people don't sit around and wait for perfect conditions to obey uh, the command of God. And so 
I think we're, hopefully the, the book will be a morale boost for people to read about how others are doing it, but then also as a morale boost, as a kind of, uh, of encouragement to action, a, a kind of plan for what people can do to put their faith um, at work in whatever, their, in whatever sphere of life. So pretty excited about that and, uh, and we'll see what happens. Comes out, comes out April, 2021. Awesome. We'll keep an eye out for that. Maybe, uh, maybe we can even give away a copy here on our podcast. Um, so you've met a lot of people through your podcast, probably working through this book, stories you talked about of pastors. Um, you know, as you've interacted specifically with church planters, uh, probably across a variety of denominations, non-denominational, whatever, the Gospel Coalition covers a pretty broad swath. Um, what, what things have you learned that uh, maybe are surprising to you or interesting or takeaways about uh, a church planter in particular? So I've been involved in a number of different church plants over the years. Um, I, I go back, I've, I've been in part of committees from existing churches to identify the planter and then to launch. I've been a member, I've been an elder, um, small group leader. I've been in just about every different capacity it seems yeah. like church planting for almost my entire almost my entire adult life and that's been mm. it's been a it's been a privilege and i'm i'm 39 years old which is technically speaking right on the very oldest edge of the millennials i don't really think <laughs> of myself that way but i know that i'm not gen x so it's a little confusing like i'm i'm definitely a child of the of the late mid to late 90s on my mu you know music and things like that um, so I don't really identify with the grunge era at the same level. I was in junior high, things like that. But yeah, all the other millennial stuff, I don't really understand though either. My point is what I've seen with church planting is that generation X, which is ahead of me, virtually every single church who has had success with a growing church and especially translating that into books and conferences is out of ministry is out of Christianity, hmm. is dead. Wow. I mean, virtually every single person for whom that's true. Not, not everyone, but almost all of them. Hmm. And so I've been asking the question, and if you guys have any feedback, you can share it with me. <laughs> I've just been asking the question, that can't be a coincidence. What happened with that generation, what was that generation taught about church planting or what, what did they believe about church planting that led this to happen? And so as I look at the millennials now in their thirties for the most part, and that's pretty standard, yeah, pretty standard generation in terms of, of church planting, I wonder, will the millennials make the same mistakes? Do they believe the same lies Will their outcomes be the same? And I don't know. It's an open question. You guys want to answer? You can go ahead. But that's that's kind of what haunts me about church. Yeah. And no. What I'm watching for. I mean, the main difference right there is you're talking ten or fifteen years of time that goes by. These are the guys that have been through the trenches. Um, so that's that's a sobering uh, picture for people that you know, have gone before. Uh, Hunter, you're our resident boomer. I mean, Gen X, uh, if you want to chime in, if you have any thoughts on that. 
Yeah, that's a good one, John. Thank you for that encouraging affirmation there. Colin, I would say that um, is somebody solidly, squarely in the Gen X category and a church planner. Um, I think a a good bit of it has to do with the rise of the Internet. Yeah, um, I, would say, that, I would say probably that's the number one thing that changed. That, that, that as I was in seminary, um, you know, my mentor in, in terms of church planning was a very meek, um, very, very evangelistic, very solid older gentleman who was in his late 60s, really, when he started mentoring me. And so he thankfully gave me an understanding of church planning that was very no frills and solidly, solidly tied down to the Reformed tradition. But when I was in seminary, I watched a lot of these guys and they realized that the notoriety that they could gain through the internet could happen quickly. And I think a lot of opportunities were afforded to them through notoriety via the internet that maybe some older, wiser, generational pastor should have come along and said, Let, let's be patient. Let's, let's, let's wait. Um, you know, spend more time in your church and with your people. Um, let's, let's not be everywhere all the time. Yeah, I think, I think another aspect of that is that the rise of the internet left the impression that church was going to be fundamentally different now um and that this younger generation because of their natural inhabitation with the internet was going to show the older generations what the future was Mm -hmm. going to look like and so there was almost a kind of deference toward the 34 year old pastor who had 5,000 people in his church and whose podcast was going crazy and book publishers were falling all over themselves you know, to get book deals with. And then on top of that, the older people, older pastors are desperately trying to get him signed up to speak at their conferences because they know that's when the young people are going to come to the conference because those older churches have lost out on a lot of the young people. And why have they lost out on a lot of the young people? Because they're going to the church plants um, in, in many cases. And so there was a sense in which the younger generation had everything figured out that we had to learn from them that probably did not help uh, a lot of the challenges with ego and, and whatnot. And, and I don't know, John, what your experience is in, in Fargo. I, I know Sioux Falls really well, and those two cities have a lot in common. And uh, I, I wouldn't be so, I mean, I'm not, not trying to be disparaging here, but in my experience, some of the trends lag a little bit um, mm-hmm. in those locations. And so I've watched things that I went through in Chicago or elsewhere over the years hit Sioux Falls, maybe five or 10 years behind elsewhere. And when I look at the church planting scene in Sioux Falls, I wonder if we haven't yet gone through that collapse, but that it might be coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I perceive some of the same problems um, emerging within within some of the there's there's a certain kind of faddishness to church planting and it seems like church plants are fighting um to try to be like which which demographic can you get so one church plant comes in and they suck up everybody who's in their you know 40s or something like that but then within five or ten years another church has come in and now they they're the they're the new thing in town and then they sort of grab a bunch of people 
from that younger group. But then there's another church that comes in and they become the new fad and they suck that all in. And it creates a lot of age segmentation and it puts a lot of pressure on younger leaders, I think in particular, and it creates some of those same effects. Now, what I haven't seen though, is like national, international fame. So that may protect church planters in that situation. So again, that may not be what's happening in Fargo, but it's definitely something that I worry about as I've watched Sioux Falls for the last 15 years or so. Yeah, so we just got the internet last week in Fargo. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're trying to catch up. No, no, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, there's one sense in which, you know, what we're trying to do in this podcast is talk about a specific type of church planting because the model that I think still exists in many cities, but definitely where I'm at, is if you're the new church, that's the church to go to. Um, I mean, there, there are new, just broad evangelical churches starting all the time. And so you're the newer, you know, hipper, got the better, louder music, whatever kind of uh, appeal. You almost have no distinction between you and the church that started 10 years ago, except for that you're newer than them. And you're going to try to meet in the slightly newer neighborhood or whatever kind of, like you said, different demographic of five years younger. Well, that's, um, that's part of what I'm asking about, about church planting in areas that remain pretty heavily church. So I'm in Birmingham, mm -hmm. so it's a very heavily churched area. Sioux Falls is a very heavily churched area. It doesn't mean it's got, it doesn't mean there, are, I mean, there are still many unbelievers and growing yeah. cities. So there's growing need for church plants. So I'm not trying to say that, but what I found in areas that gen, generally are, are heavily churched, this includes Birmingham and also includes in Sioux Falls, is that it is very easy for a church plant to grow very quickly through transfer growth. Yep. And so a lot, some of the biggest churches that we have in Birmingham, I mean, it's just a bunch of people who have gone from being Baptist or Presbyterian to, or Methodist to being non-denominational. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And Colin, I would challenge church planters that are listening to this. Uh, I experienced some of this in the first church that I planted. Um, people were coming to us from other churches. We were not seeking them out. Um, we were hearing great things like you use the Bible a lot and yeah. in grace and so forth and so on. But I would always circle around to my leaders and, and ask the question, are we seeing unchurched and de-churched people? Yeah. And so the, the two things I would, that I would say from your comments are, number one, if you're a young leader and you're in a church plant that is growing and you look around and all your other leaders are young, you need to go find a collective of older people seasoned pastors to help you um, in some sense be a de facto leadership group or a group of elders to help you uh, as you plant. To, not only do you need a coach, but I think that you need that also. And then secondly is to ask that question, where are the de-churched and unchurched people and how can we reach them or why are we not reaching them? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, even in the in the church that I serve, I often will ask the question, how many of these people would not be in a different church if our church didn't exist? And it doesn't mean, I mean, I'm glad that they are in our church, but I'm wondering if Redeemer Community Church in Birmingham, Alabama just suddenly disappeared tomorrow, what would happen? Well, I mean, thankfully, I'm in a place that because of church planting especially, there are many, many, many other good churches in the area that they could go to. And that's encouraging. 
Um, and like I said, that's because of church planting in, in large part over the last 10 to 20 years. So I don't want to take that away. At the same time, it does mean that if you're going to be deliberate about evangelism, which is what we say church planting is, is all about in many cases, then especially in an area that's pretty heavily churched, you have to go out of your way to do it because it's always going to be more, it's always going to be easier to grab people who already have patterns of service, patterns of giving, patterns of, of just ch being churched that you can plug and play them into a church plant. And again, you need some of those people. I'm not saying that's bad in every case, but you got to be clear about what you're actually trying to accomplish when you're church plant. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Um, so you've been involved, you said many church plants, basically your whole adult life has been in one role or another within kind of a church planting context. Um, you know, not necessarily as the planting pastor. Uh, right. So what has your experience been like? Uh, what have you learned along the way? Um, and we can even kind of put this together, both inside and outside the church, uh, as you've interacted being kind of the weirdo uh, in your world that you, you're part of these church plants, these uh, startup, startup businesses, right? Yeah, well, I, I've learned a lot about myself that I love that entrepreneurial work. I love being on the cutting edge of things. That's been my experience with the Gospel Coalition. I didn't really know that about myself. It's probably why I gravitate toward church plants, and I almost get an mm -hmm. itch that when I'm in, I'm in a church that's really successful, that, man, I, I should probably be starting something else again, or I should be a part of something else. You know, again, I, I, I love some of the informality that you often see in church plants. Um, I love a sense of, of camaraderie that develops within them around the mission. Um, just, it's, a, it's a very invigorating environment that I find. But I've also found that I'm not half as smart about church planting as I thought I was when I was younger. Somehow I've gotten a lot dumber with age. Um, and what I mean <laughs> is I thought when I moved to Birmingham that it was pretty obvious that everywhere just needs a whole bunch more churches. That's pretty much the solution. And I met with an established pastor early on when I moved here and he said, we don't need any more churches. And I thought that was incredibly dumb. Um, I still don't agree with that. But as I've stopped and I've thought about it, I understand more, some of more of the challenges now. In my community, it, there are so many different subsets of people who do not interact with each other. It's a very racially segregated and also class separated uh, society. And when you're trying to church plant in a society that's so dramatically separated by economics, and, um, and race, and in much of the South, race and politics are the same thing. Um, when they are so, when those divides are so strong, all of a sudden as a church plant, you are, pretty, you are pretty boxed in because it would be rather naive. Now, we want the Holy Spirit to work in this way, but sadly, the evidence of churches in my community is that they tend to reach one segment of people one economic class, one racial group, one political group. And so to be able to overcome those divisions is tremendously difficult. I think it's actually the greatest need, spiritual need for our church, is churches like that. But whereas at one point, I thought that that was a relatively passive phenomenon, like you could just show up and as long as you were committed to that, it would be fine. 
Now I understand that it is far more complicated than I ever thought, which is why I spent my Thanksgiving evening pouring over precinct level election data from the mm -hmm. presidential election to try to identify how different neighborhoods behave. Because what I find is that if you're going to try to plant a church in my community that transcends the world's boundaries, it's much easier to do that in an environment where people are accustomed to having to live with people who disagree with them, mm. who look different from them, who you can't just assume, but much of my city, they, you don't interact with people who are like that. And so I've been looking at all these different neighborhoods to say, what neighborhoods are split about 50-50 politically or 60-40? And I've been asking questions like, is it even possible to plant a church that would transcend these worldly divisions in a community that's separated politically by a 70-30 or plus margin? Now, one level, that seems obvious. I mean, the Holy Spirit, he can do whatever he wants. And yet church after church after church after church after church falls into the same ditch because they tend to plant churches that reach a certain kind of person who does not interact with people who are not like them. Well, good luck having a multi-ethnic church in that situation. So yeah, I just, I think I've gotten a lot dumber. I don't really have answers, <laughs> but I do have hard questions. And it, I, I would love other people to, to help me to answer these hard questions. That's how I feel right now about church planting. Oh yeah, I was getting excited. I thought the answer was about to, about to. No, no, what, what I, what, no, what I've been saying, Hunter, is that I really do think that if we're going to target church plants in Birmingham, we, we should be looking at neighborhoods that are no more than a 60-40 political divide. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, and, that, and, and again, that, that sounds very worldly for me to say. But again, the fundamental principle is that trying to do multi-ethnic, multi-class, committed, we're, we're together as Christians in an environment where people are almost never doing that outside of church very hard sure yeah very hard absolutely now it's it's interesting how the a few different things you've touched on how the church has mirrored the world you think of the church planting like you said kind of the gen x at the rise of the internet it's like the dot-com bubble and there was lots of carnage uh the church planners followed that same trajectory and the what seemed like would never be an end of growth and success has left awake and the divisions in our own you know culture are absolutely present in the church um you know it's so easy to just be isolated to the people you agree with or the you know whatever kind of demographic you want to take and, and we just surround ourselves with those people and uh that's that's a much more comfortable way to do life um so yeah that's uh that's challenging challenging word i, I remember in uh, my missions class in seminary one of my professors said uh, uh if you're thinking about church planting or missions you should be looking for crossroads uh those roads in town that are divisions or you know that are clearly on the edge where you kind of have people like you said that maybe are interacting with each other they work at the same place uh, shop at the same stores and yet there's this clear division uh, that's where you can really um, you know have gospel ministry that transcends the cultural divisions that we have um, in any city. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's one, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's one of the principles that I've been using as well. And to find those cross crossroad um, precincts mm -hmm. where people who, again, different ethnicity or different political views have to interact with each other in the same physical space is a place where 
a church is, I mean, I bet if you map that out in a lot of different communities, I bet you will find that most of your thriving inst- existing churches are not in those places. Yeah. In many right, cases. Right. I, I talked with a, I talked with a pastor uh, not long, ago, not long ago. And in 2016, his church, Southern Baptist church, his church hosted a, it was a voting precinct. And he said, I sat there all day and I watched all these people come in and I said, wow, where did all these young people come from? And I said, how did you not know that your church building is surrounded by 20 and 30 somethings? He said, I don't know. We haven't had a new member in our church in 30 years. Oh, wow. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, oh, and then I asked him about the election and he said, oh yeah, every single person in our church voted the exact same way said hmm uh, all these things might be connected <laughs> right yeah <laughs> these things might be connected well guess what uh the uh church just uh just closed and uh got acquired by another church and now they're trying to replant with a younger pastor in that area and yeah. i think it'll probably go really well because that neighborhood actually i would have pegged in my entire city as the exact perfect place for a church plant mm-hmm. So I'm all for church planting, but I think we have to ask some real hard questions about what we're trying to accomplish and how. Yeah, you have to be intentional. You have to have the, that intentional DNA woven into the fabric of what you're trying to do from the very beginning. And what often happens is church planting is hard enough as it is, and you begin yeah. to attract a certain type of people, whether they're unchurched, dechurched, or churched. And you lose that intentionality because church planning is hard. And so you get a certain group of people coming a certain class uh, and, and that becomes your focus because you're, you're struggling as is. And sometimes I wonder in some settings, if multi-ethnic planning is easier than multi-class planting. Oh yeah. I I don't, I, I don't know, but I mean, depends on where you are. And this is part of why John, I love having the different experiences of growing up in rural South Dakota and then living in the deep South of kind of suburban South, because it gives me all kinds of fodder for compare and comparing and contrasting. And the places also always change, which is interesting, but the, the class dynamics of the South are nothing like the class dynamics of the upper Midwest. Um, and so, and also the racial makeup is pretty dramatically different, um, as well. And those present real challenges that you might not assume. I mean, I'll give you just a a little example of this. Um, when I met my now wife, when we were in college, I asked what ethnicity she was and she looked at me like I had, I was an alien. It just, she was like, I mean, I think you can see I'm white. And I said, that's not an ethnicity. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I want to know yeah. English, German, Dutch. Like, I can see that you're white. Well, wait, 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 what nationality? Give me some help here. She's like, no one has ever asked me that question. I have never asked it. I have never, I don't even understand what that's supposed to mean. Wow. Well, the point was, yeah, in a lot of the deep South, you're black or you're white, which tells you a lot about what, what what's happening in that place. But where I grew up, whether you were German or Dutch or Norwegian or Danish made a huge difference, not a huge yeah. difference, but it made, it made, it made a significant difference 
and you can always count on making fun of the Norwegians. That's kind of your, your thing. Okay, well, but you know, it, was, it was almost like the, the narcissism of small differences though, at the same time, because yeah. more or less everybody was the same. The point was they were the same class. It didn't really matter. And as far as ethnic diversity, there either wasn't much or it was concentrated among Native American populations that you didn't interact with very much on reservations. And so, I mean, those are all factors you have to, you have to think through as a church planter. And I'll say, and another thing I've talked with pastors about just in terms of differences is I'll say, if your wife is expecting to work in the South, at least a lot of the South, people will often be very angry at you because of their expectations for what she's supposed to do serving the church and also being mm -hmm. available to women in the community. This also depends on class, by the way. Um, then you go and, and I've, I've had pastors say, well, my wife's not planning to work as we, you know, as we are leading a church in South Dakota. And I say, good luck, because the reason the church is paying you only $30,000 is because they expect your wife to make another $30,000 in her job. And they're going to be yeah. really ticked off at you if she doesn't work. They're going to say, boy, well, he, she thinks she's so special that she doesn't have to work like the rest of us do. Again, not every community is like that. Not, not every place is going to be like that. But the point is, you have to know which questions to ask. Yeah. And you, you have to know which things you're assuming that you probably shouldn't assume. And because most church planters are like missionaries, they're working in communities that are not the same as where they grew up. Sometimes they are, and then you have a home field advantage. But in many cases, you're having to learn. You have to have that missionary mindset to know, just because I look at somebody and I make assumptions doesn't mean we're thinking about things the same way. Um, you almost have to imagine, again, you're going to a, a, foreign, a foreign culture, a foreign country. Well, Colin, it's been uh, a challenging, helpful conversation. Uh, tell us and our listeners, if we wanted to follow your podcast, uh, read some of the things you've been writing, uh, where can we do that? Yeah, you can just uh, follow me on Twitter at Colin Hansen or go to the Gospel Coalition website, tgc.org. And uh, yeah, or search on your preferred pot, wherever you're listening right now, just uh, search for <laughs> Gospel Bound. So um, I appreciate the conversation, guys. You're doing great work. Oh, it was good to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, hopefully we can um, text back and forth during the national championship game. <laughs> I was looking good. I'm yeah. feeling pretty good about the defense. I'm yeah. feeling real good. <laughs> they've, they've improved since Old Miss. <laughs> oh, man. That was a bad night. Yeah, that was a track meet. <laughs> All right. Well, Colin, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate, again, you having been joining us on Five Points Church Planning Podcast. That's the last word for now. Thanks to Auxilio for sponsoring this episode, and thanks to you for listening. You can reach us with comments or questions on Twitter and Facebook at Five Points Planting or by email at fivepointschurchplanting at gmail.com. See you all next time. Five Points Church Planting is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters.